0: Welcome back to Progressions, Success in the Music Industry. This is episode five. I want to take a few things that we've discussed over the last several weeks and tie them together a bit. Last week, we talked about fear and how what you are most afraid of is probably what's best for you. And back in episode two, we covered deep work and the importance of focusing in on your work without distraction. Now this week, I want to go at the beast of a concept that is starting. And I bring up deep work and fear because I think these two things are directly related to successfully starting. You're probably asking, what are we talking about? What exactly are we starting? We're talking about starting anything. Starting your record, starting to learn a new instrument, starting a new business venture, starting whatever you want, music-related or not. And we're going back to the library for this one. There is a book that really resonated with me, and I wouldn't say it's necessarily about starting, but I would say it's about the things that are preventing you from starting and the things you can do to beat them. It's called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. When I was first turned on to the book, I had my doubts that a historical fiction writer had something to say that was going to pertain to my music career, and I was 100% wrong. A quick background on the author. You could probably make the statement that for most of his life, he was a struggling writer. He wrote for 27 years before his first novel was published. And in that time, he held 21 jobs in 11 states. But he now has numerous books published, some of which, like this one, have become staples in shaping creatives' careers, and one that is even taught at West Point in the U.S. Naval Academy. His angle for the war of art is that he wanted to help others understand how to break through the resistance that is holding them back from their dreams and goals. So let's tie all these things together and get back to starting. Coming up with a great idea is far easier than executing it. We've all had an idea that stayed an idea, and you're probably still telling somebody about it. So why do these ideas not come to fruition? It's because you meet resistance when you start, and you let it defeat you. This is the resistance that Stephen has based his book around. In the first section of this book, he lays out all of the forms of resistance that you will meet on your creative journey, and they are all spot on. I think the most common form of resistance, and the one that I personally battle the most with, is procrastination. Procrastination haunts all of us, and it's because it's a form of resistance that doesn't raise red flags, because it doesn't feel like quitting. But it's not far off from quitting. You can procrastinate something all the way to your deathbed. To quote Stephen directly, we don't tell ourselves, I'm never going to write my symphony. Instead, we say, I am going to write my symphony. I'm just going to start tomorrow. End quote. That is a perfect example of something that I'm pretty sure every creative has said in one form or another. I'm not going to break down every form of resistance in his book. I'll let y'all dig into that and experience them for yourself. But spoiler alert, all of the fears I mentioned last episode are easily identified as resistance. So the second section of the book is about conquering resistance. A piece of that section that ties in best with starting is when he breaks down the difference between amateurs and professionals and why to be successful, you need to, quote, turn pro. It's very easy to assume that you are a professional, but in actuality, you may still be an amateur. Stephen compares being a professional in your creative career to having a job. There are things that you do when you have a job that if you are not doing in your creative career, then you are not a professional. Here's a few of them. You show up every day no matter what. You stay for your full shift, you earn money, and you receive praise or blame in the real world. There are a few more, but these felt like they might connect the easiest. If you aren't going to work for your creative life every day, as if it's your job, you are not professional. If you aren't earning money and your livelihood is not at stake from your creative endeavors, you are not a professional. If you aren't receiving real-world feedback from people because you aren't releasing music, you are not a professional. Now, some people might give me pushback on that, but honestly, that doesn't bother me. I'm trying to inspire you to kickstart and chase your creative passion, and being an amateur is not going to launch you to stardom in your music career. It's a cold, hard reality. Remember, if you look at where you are now and you don't fall into Stephen's description of a professional, that doesn't mean you can't step into it. This is where the concept of deep work comes into play. If you want to turn pro, as Stephen says, you need to put the time in. Do your creative pursuits as if they are a job. Go to work. And if you are currently unable to invest your full day to your creative pursuit because you are just starting out, the concept of deep work is even more important to you because you need to make big strides in smaller chunks of time. And the only way to do that is to do it uninterrupted. If you're unfamiliar with the concept of deep work or Cal Newport's book, be sure to jump back to episode two and check it out. Moving on to the third and final section of The War of Art, this section is about the inspiration that will come when you make space to do your creative work as a professional and how to tap into it to its fullest. Connecting this section with what we're discussing here would take a bit longer than I think is appropriate for an episode open, but I'll say it's worth the read. He touches on how one's ego will work against their appetite to evolve, which sounds a bit like that fear of change we mentioned last episode. He also discusses the dangers of comparing yourself to others, nobody's ever done that, and getting to the root of what your honest artistic intentions are. I'll leave the rest of it for those of you who decide to read the book for yourselves. So to wrap up, we should bring it back to starting again. Whatever it is that you are trying to start, you need to make the time and the space to treat it as a professional would. You're going to face fear, doubt, procrastination, distraction, and various other forms of resistance. But if you want to accomplish your goal, you need to push through that and do the work. I'll close out with this quote from Stephen, which I think sums it up best, direct from his website. We can't control the level of talent we've been given. We have no control over the nature of our gift. What we can control is our self-motivation, our self-discipline, our self-validation, and our self-reinforcement. We can control how hard and how smart we work. Today we are joined by recording engineer, mixer, and producer Cameron Lister. Cameron is a veteran of the Los Angeles recording scene and over the last decade has honed his focus in on the Indian alternative world. He's made records with an array of artists including the Fratellis, Ben Rector, KT Tunstall, and OK Go. And I can honestly say I've never met anyone as passionate about distortion as Cameron is. I'm always happy to get to hang and chat with him because he's one of my oldest friends, was even best man at my wedding. So welcome to the show, Cameron Lister.
1: Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for being on nice.
0: um, Amazing, how are you today?
1: Good, I'm uh, sitting in my garage for those who are uh, experiencing this through audio where uh, my mix rig is set up these days during the uh, the COVID reality, I guess. And, uh, yeah, just hoping that the temperature, temperature stays low enough that I don't, uh, start sweating profusely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll try, we'll try to get you out of here before the, uh, the sun gets too high. Uh, are right, you, <laughs> uh, are you dying to get back into studios with, with bands? I mean, that's where you spend most of your time.
1: I am. Yeah. I mean, the way I would say that the way that I work in general is that things sort of, it, there's like a pendulum, you know? So, what'll end up happening? And this sort of happens naturally, like COVID or not COVID. Um, there'll be like two or three months where it's all mixing stuff. You know, maybe some like small, little one-off production things, but it's it'll be all mixing. And usually by the end of that point, it's you know that's a lot of like sitting in a room by yourself and you know pulling up all the same plugins and all that kind of stuff. And by that point, like three months into it, it's like, oh man, I wish which I was like working on a record again. And inevitably something comes up and I'm back in the studio, you know, recording people playing instruments and all that kind of stuff. But then after a couple months of that, I'm like, oh, I just want to go back to mixing and just sitting (laughs) room. So it it goes back and forth just kind of naturally, I'd say.
0: To the ebbs and flow of uh, human interaction.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Oh, that's that's awesome. I want to jump back before we go too far. Uh, How did you end up, how'd you end up here? How'd you get into engineering production? Did you play when you were a kid?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think I, you know, I took music in school. I was actually a trumpet principal. Started that like around third grade, I think. And played that basically my whole life. Picked a guitar in high school because, you know, that was a better conversation starter for talking to girls. (laughs) (laughs) I was just always, music was one of the only things that ever really captured my attention, you know. And... How I ended up in the engineering and production side of things is sort of—I'd say it's a bit of a different route that most people take. Is that uh, when I was in high school, and uh, you have to—you have to understand this was the late '90s, and some some choices were made, and you know. But I was—I was really into bands like Dave Matthews Band and Fish, and that sort of like whole quote-unquote jam band scene. What was really cool about those types of artists is that they encouraged people to bootleg all their shows like record their shows and i just thought that was so cool and so i went out you know i graduated high school and had like a graduation party and like basically just spent all of the money i got from like friends and family buying like some really nice microphones and a preamp and i even had like a portable uh a to d converter so i could record everything to dat it was like all powered off like a car battery and i would just like roll into concerts with this like rig of stuff but all these all these bands were cool with it you know they had like they encouraged all that and so that's sort of how i found my love of recording was by going to shows and just you know taping the experience and being able to give cds all my friends and you know it's back when people still burn cds (laughs) but uh that was i guess that's how i sort of found that you know that uh avenue of of stuff and then after high school, you know, I went to college, as you know, it's where we met, uh, Berkeley School of Music, and really just dove into production and engineering and fell in love with it, you know. And and mean, ten years old. later, you end up in Los Angeles. Yeah. Exactly.
0: <laughs> well, the, the, um, I, I never did any show taping. Did, did you have to get approval to like load all that gear in? I mean, did you have a large setup? Were you a weirdo or were you good? I had
1: a very... I, I, okay, so here's the thing. I had a pair of like Earthworks microphones, which are those like, you know, long pencil microphones that I had in like, had like a really cool like shock mount. I mean, cool in quotation marks, but a really cool shock mount. Then I had this, I think it was technically like a lighting stand for like photo, like video and photo stuff, but I would attach the microphones to that. And the reason I had this one stand is I could throw the mics up 17 feet in the air. But it's like that way you didn't have the guy, you know, who was just wasted next to you, you know, hollering Freebird all night right into the microphones. And then, you know, cables and like I said, like preamp, D to A converter, car battery, uh, and, a, uh, and a, DAT, a DAT recorder. And it was, it was ridiculous. It, it looked ridiculous. People were pretty cool about it. Like, you know, all the bands did a really good job of like informing them. Like if you walk up to a concert today and you're like, you've got this huge bag.
0: Is a car like battery. Electronics.
1: Involved. Yeah, car battery. Like, there, there's going to be some red flags, you know? But back then, like, the bands were really vocal and communicative with, like, venue staff. And I never really had a problem. I had... There were two... There were two times where I had a problem getting in. The first one was... I went to go see Dave Matthews in... I think it was in Montreal. And me and a couple other people who were, like, into the recording thing showed up at the venue. And, like, immediately we got escorted by security into this, like... I don't know, this underground prison, basically. (laughs) And they're just like, wait here. And they leave us in this room for like, I mean, it felt like a long time. It was probably like five minutes. And, uh, but like all of a sudden, like the big steel door opens and this guy walks in. I think he was part of the road crew. And somehow he had heard that we were like locked downstairs and like came to rescue us and like walked us into the venue. Like we walked like backstage, like across the stage and like down the steps to our seats in the audience. It was really crazy. It's great yeah it was, it was fun uh, and then the other time i was uh it was a show and it was matt nathanson and howie day and i think i was 20 at the time and i got into the venue but like where they wanted people to record was like the 21 only section of the venue and so i was like just standing there with like all my gear like looking like a total dork you know uh just like well i guess i'm not going to record the show that kind of stinks and this guy comes up to me and he's like He's super, he's like instantly like super excited and like right in my face. And he's like, Hey man, are you, start, are you trying to record the show? Are they like, are they not letting you record the show? Like what's going on? And it was actually Matt Nathanson, like himself, just like walked out to say hi. And I, and I was like, yeah, like I, you know, I'd love to record, but I'm not 21 and blah, blah, blah. And uh, he's like, Oh, it's all good. Follow me. And like, just, you know, escorted me into the section I wasn't supposed to be in, you know. Perfect. Uh, yeah, it all worked out. <laughs> That's awesome.
0: That's good. Um, so back to uh back to recording studios how would you go you went boston to la how how'd that move happen
1: so after i graduated uh berkeley i stayed in boston for 2 years i was dating this girl at the time who is now my wife she was from the east coast and it was just sort of we had this really comfortable thing going on in in boston and i was trying to do like uh jingle writing all and all this kind of stuff and I mean, looking back, it was it was sort of a mistake to hang around, especially a town like Boston. It's really saturated with want to be engineers and want to be producers, and there are people who definitely make a go of it and do really well. But I would say it was not the right place for me after graduating. So I actually visited you in Los Angeles, and then after that visit, I came back to uh, to Boston uh, to my apartment with my then girlfriend, and basically told her like, I got to move. I got to be I got to be in studios because at the time you were working at Capitol uh, Studios. Yes, yeah, and you took me on like a tour of the place, and it was just this—I uh, mean, just walking around those halls and seeing those, you know, like the Nat King Cole piano and the looking at like the Frank Sinatra U forty-seven microphone. It was just—it uh, was just a moment like, oh, I'm missing—I'm missing so much by not being out here. And at the time, it was also you know, a lot has changed. That was, I think, two thousand eight you know, at the time, like big studios were still, they were sort of just they're at the end of that run where it was like all those really big records were always happening at big studios and all that kind of stuff. So it was just sort of, I felt like I was missing out. And a couple months later, my girlfriend and I packed up our car and a moving truck and just moved to LA, no job, no prospects for either of us. We're like, oh, we'll figure it out when we get there. You know, luckily it did. About three quarters of the way across the country, uh, I got a call from... A friend, mutual friend of ours, Martin Koch, who's an amazing engineer, uh, and at the time he was working for Henson Studios, which way back in the day was A and M, right? Yeah. And uh, and he called me and was like, "Hey, we're we're looking to hire an assistant. Like, how soon can you be in L.A.?" I'm like, "Oh, I'll be there in like a day and a half." Like, we jumped back in the car and just kept driving. Came to L.A., got an interview at uh, Henson, and I thought, "Oh my god!" Like, I just got here. I'm. I'm gonna, I've made it, like I've already got this interview for this job. And the interview went terribly. I think I said all of the wrong things. <laughs> I don't even remember the name of the woman. I think it was Fariel who was uh, interviewing me. And she was she was nice, but like, she was like, what do you wanna, you know, what's your career goal? And I was like, oh, like I'm really into to guys like Danny Lenoir, Brian Eno, who kind of bounced between the like engineer, producer, musician role, like, Doing everything basically, and she was like, "Yeah, this is not the place for that." And uh, I never got a call back. I never got the gig. It, you know, it was it did not work out. <laughs> so then I sent my resume to every studio in town, and I got a call a couple weeks later from Sound Factory, uh, which is part of uh, Sunset Sound, and they said, "Somebody's moving on, and your resume's at the top of the pile. Can you come down for an interview?" I said, "Yes." That interview went well, and they said, "Can you start this afternoon?" There we go. That's how I landed my hooks in LA, if you will.
0: That's great. It's I, I was actually just talking to someone uh, the other day that also got hired, uh, hired and told to start right now. Can you start now? And it's like yeah. definitely. I don't think it happens anymore, but it's definitely. I think was a test at the time of like, oh, you want to work here? Okay, cool. You can start yeah. now, or you're not going to work here.
1: They did give me a couple hours. They said come back this afternoon. So I like went home. I think I was wearing like like khakis and like a collared shirt, which is not really the vibe for most recording <laughs> studios, but I was trying to be a professional. That's know? right. And, That's uh, but yeah, and then that, then I would say like then things really started in Los Angeles for me.
0: That's awesome. So uh, Sound Factory, what did you, what did you take away from your time there? Like how, how quick did you move through the ranks? How long were you there? Were there any like big records that kind of changed yeah. your, your mind,
1: your game? I I really loved my time at Sound Factory, and and, um, both because of the studio and the people who worked there. Phil McConnell uh, was the manager at the time. I think now he's actually back over at Sunset. It was just it was a really it was a really friendly place. Everybody sort of like it was a very tight knit group of people that worked at the studio. And then when I started there, it was just instantly it was here. You have this network of people who they all want you to succeed. Like, that was the cool thing about, like, the staff and, like, the other engineers and uh, the assistants that were there. Like, they were all, everybody was trying to do the same thing because the, the philosophy was, you know, we train our assistants to do these records so that when they, you know, go off on their own and they're engineers and producers, they're going to want to come back here and do their work here. And, and that really, that's how it happens. So anyway, so it was great. So the, when I first started, um, I was the night shift runner My days started at 5 p.m. and it went till... In theory, it went till the last session was done, but at the time, there was a record being made there. It was being mixed there, and it was Metallica's uh, Death Magnetica, I think is the name of the record. I don't don't know. I don't remember, but they wanted to have somebody... Like, if they left at 9 p.m., they wanted the option to come back at 11 if... I think Rick Rubin was producing the record, you know, So if Rick wanted or the band wanted somebody to come back in at 11 to like turn the hi-hat up, like somebody had to be at the studio. So I started working there. It was 5 p.m. to 2 a.m. no matter what was going on. Uh, It was fun and crazy. And it was a good introduction to how hard people actually work. You know, it's like, Oh, it's like all these like rock stars and, you know, engineers, and it must just be crazy parties all the time. And the reality is it's like, it's a recording studio. There are budgets, there are deadlines, there are people who have invested uh, their, you know, all of their emotion and they really care about what's happening. And so people just worked, people really worked. And it was a good intro to see that this was a career that you had to take seriously, that you really had to put the time and the effort in and the care. And then other than that, you know, I think I spent, that was like the first record. And then there were other cool things that came through. I got to work at both Sound Factory and Sunset Sound as as a runner because they just, you know, shuffled us around depending on what studios needed what. And about a year, there was this guy who worked at the studio a lot. Uh, He was a producer and his name was Tony Hoffer. And he also had a room at Sunset Sound. And so, oftentimes at night, I'd be over there. I'd be the runner, and he'd be in his room mixing. He would just come out of his room. We would we would chat, and I would sort of bug him about you know questions about EQ and kick levels and compression, and you know I didn't really know what I was talking about, but it was just I, you know you, you wanted to pick somebody's brain, somebody at that level. He's an amazing producer, amazing mixer, and I was a fan of his before I even came to LA. He had made some amazing records at that point. Like he did, he produced. Uh, Midnight Vultures for Beck. He produced uh, that first Kooks record. The Fratellis. He'd he just done some really, really amazing work. And a lot of it was at those studios. You know, was at Sunset. was at Sound Factory. So we kind of became friends, uh, or friendly, I would say at the time. And he eventually decided that he was going to move into Studio B at Sound Factory full-time. Because that was a room that he did a lot of production in and mixing in. And it got to this point where it made sense, instead of him not being able to book the room because somebody else had booked it, um, that he would just lock it out full time. And when he did that, I was still sitting at the desk. I had basically done no assisting, but we had built a rapport, you know, like we hadn't, it's not something that we had, that that I had orchestrated or certainly that he had orchestrated. It was just, it was two people who had gotten along, you know. And so when he moved in, he walked into the, the studio one day and I was sitting at the front desk and he said, hey, here's the deal, I'm moving in, do you want to come be my assistant? And of course I said yes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, a, it was a, at the time, like I couldn't imagine anything cooler. It was getting to work with one of your heroes. And um, that, it was amazing. definitely trial by fire. Like, yeah, it was trial by fire. Like there were so many things. I, I mean, look, the older you get, the more you realize you don't know, right? But at the time I was woefully underqualified to be an assistant in those rooms. Like I really didn't understand sort of the eccentricities of how, um, how how things worked in that room. Like there's, there's some weird things with the patch bay and like polarity on tie lines and stuff that like, you don't know unless you've worked in there a bunch. And I had no idea. And I was just like, I was like, Oh, I guess I'll just figure it out. You know? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, I think that says, that says a lot about his understanding that, you know kind of designing the vibe of where you want to work and you know surrounding you with the people that you know are going to fit with you and your clients is like super key.
1: Oh, definitely. We we talked about it some years later and he he's, he basically said that he's like, you know, I'm a great engineer. I can teach anybody what I need them to know. Like and like as an assistant, like your job is not that complicated. You got to know how the patch bay works and how the headphone system works and you have to just write everything down. So if somebody says in a week Hey, can we redo that guitar? Do we remember how that guitar was set up and what the pedals were and the mic preamps, microphones? And you can say yes, I have wrote it down here. But yeah, so he made the point that all of that stuff you can learn, like unless you're really, you know, really a dim bulb, the uh, (laughs) all that stuff is is the is the easy aspect of it. And what you can't teach or what you can't really. You can't change what somebody's like, like, what your rapport is, what you're like, why you're friends with somebody. Like, are they a good hang? Is this, is this somebody you want to be locked in a small room with no windows for 12 hours a day for six days a week? That's like the, that's the biggest question. If the answer is yes to that, then everything else you can sort out afterwards.
0: If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out Tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Yeah, it, exactly. Completely agree. The the nothing uh, Nothing beats, like, a good team of people all working for the same goal.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, like, just understanding your role and your... what 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 is expected of you like you know if you're going to be an assistant in a recording studio like you're not the engineer you're there to support the engineer and the engineer might make different decisions you would make and you need to understand that like that's their choice and nobody wants to hear from the guy who's been here a month about how to set up the drums like the microphones over the drums you know (laughs) (laughs) just do what's asked of you do it quickly do it well and you'll learn a lot
0: Amazing. So you're you're obviously you're not employed by Sound Factory or Sunset anymore. What when did you decide to go out into the world and do your own thing?
1: Yeah, so uh yeah, when I started as a runner I was then and the, it, technically, like in terms of paperwork, I was immediately fired from Sound Factory as soon as I started working for Tony. So at that point I was an independent contractor. But like, you know, at that point Tony was my only client. So I wasn't like <laughs> I wasn't really that independent. It was definitely like, you know, live or, live or die by his schedule. And at the time, his work schedule, really was six days a week, 12 hours a day. Maybe every two or three months, he would take a couple days off. But I don't think it's a stretch to say that he's a bit of a workaholic. <laughs> you know, that's changed some in, in recent years. Uh, he's a father and um, you know, he's, he's married. And so he definitely spends the time with his family. But yeah, at the time, it was just full on with him. And then... After I think it was like a year and a half after I'd started assisting for him. At the time, he was using this engineer, Todd Burke, for basically all of the engineering projects. We'd been in the same room for a year and a half. Like we weren't, you know, because he had that room booked out full time. Like it wasn't like time was being spent at other studios, even within Sound Factory or Sunset. And I just got to this point of just sort of burnout. Like I had learned learned everything uh, there was to learn as an assistant. I was just looking for another opportunity, and so I talked to Tony about it. And I was like, "Hey, you've got Todd. I feel like I have to go." And so I just put that out there that this was going to end pretty soon, and um, another gig came along that was going to be sort of that was supposed to be somewhat full time. So I just said, "You know, thanks for the year and a half, and uh, I'll see you when I see you." And left and went out into the world as a, as an independent engineer.
0: I want to jump back. You mentioned uh, burnout. I read that as like a, a burnout from not learning, which I think is kind of worth noting that a lot of people, they stop learning and they just get, they're fine with that. Obviously you didn't oh, feel definitely.
1: That no, I mean, I'll say this about, you know, having a career like what we do as engineers and producers and musicians. At a certain point, you sort of realize it's a bit of a war of attrition. What I mean by that is, you know, we went to, music school for college. And we graduated with hundreds of other people who were all going to do the same thing that we did. And at some point you look around the room and you realize like most of those people aren't doing this anymore. And there's not a judgment there. You know, I'm not criticizing anybody who chooses a different path, but it's really, really hard. And at some point you just have to stick with it and just know like, at some point this is going to get a little easier. (laughs) And um, Presumably. Yeah, hopefully still waiting for that day. Uh, (laughs) it's called retirement. Yeah. Yeah. But so you reach that point of like, if I just stick this out, you'll wake up one day and look back and be like, Oh yeah, I was an engineer. I've been an engineer for the past couple of years. Huh? I didn't realize that, you know, but to to sort of veer back to your question, like, yes, it's definitely like the burnout comes with, with, it can be learning things or really just moving forward in your career. You know, you can be learning new things, but it's also about creating new opportunities for yourself. And at the time, working for Tony was, like I said, it was a 72-hour work week. And I wasn't taking the time to create other opportunities for myself, other work, looking for different projects where, were, you know, you would learn new things, back to your point. So it was just, I mean, that's what the burnout was. It was, I, I've sort of taken everything from this situation that I can, and I got to go and figure out how I can learn more stuff, different stuff as well
0: new stuff i mean and i mean obviously you have you have a lot of drive to a recognize that and then want to you know push forward is that were you raised that way was there anything in your life that that got you to have that
1: kind of like fire and passion for what you're doing i mean probably right like there must (laughs) there must have been because i i i think we're all products of our environments you know i think certainly it has to do with uh the way my parents raised me, um, they were always very, you know, they were always supportive, but it was, you know, whatever you have to do, you just, you have to really do it. That was sort of the expectation. I wasn't a particularly good student, like overall, you know, when I was growing up, but I attribute that not to the fact that I didn't know how to work hard or that, um, like, I don't think I'm an idiot. <laughs> uh, but I just sort of attribute that to the fact that like, if, I'm, if I am interested in something, I would do really, really well. And, or maybe not even just interested in whatever it is, but if I know that this is going to lead to something that I'm really interested in, then there's value in this and I'll pour myself into it. But it's hard to make yourself care about just hard work for the sake of hard work. Like There has to be, not necessarily a ward, but a progression that you're working towards.
0: Right. And obviously a, a deep interest in something.
1: Yeah. I'll also say, um, you know, not to compliment you too much. I don't want you to get full of yourself, but... We can cut this uh, out. (laughs) Good. (laughs) No, but but having... um, Surrounding yourself with like-minded people, like I have a pretty small uh, social circle, but I will... I can confidently say that the people who are a part of that circle have that same trait of just... Like I would never question their work ethic for something like... I was uh, somebody offered me a gig engineering for a Ziggy Marley record. Like this was maybe like a year or two ago. I can't remember. Uh, by the time I was booked on another project, and there's a another mutual friend of ours, Jesse String, is a really really talented engineer, and he loves reggae. And it was just like, oh, he's going to be perfect for it. And not only is he going to be perfect for it, but I'm going to recommend him, and it's going to reflect well on me that I am. Associated with somebody who's going to be as passionate about the work as I would be. So having having those people around you that to help sort of foster that collective, uh, what's the word? I, do you know what I'm trying to say? Like,
0: oh yeah, just for having sure.
1: people keep, having like minded people around you is a really good way of making sure you don't deviate from that.
0: Well, it helps keep you in check. And I think when I mean when you work as much as so many people do in all aspects of this business you do hit those burnouts and those like, I can't believe I'm not, am I gonna break through? Is anybody gonna listen to my single? You know, and you need you need a good core of people to be like, yeah, man, put put the song out or or like, take that gig. It's gonna be great for you. Like, so you just need that around you. So you got, A, you have to have a, a great group of people. And, you know, you talk about recommending people, it is like kind of an unspoken rule, I think, in our industry that uh, if you're gonna not take a gig and recommend somebody, you better send somebody Send somebody better and pray to God they don't take the gig from you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a catch twenty too. You're like, oh man, I got I to gotta send the best person I know and then this guy's never going to call me again.
1: Uh, I think that record got nominated for a Grammy as well. I, like,
0: think, I think it did.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That hurts. That hurts a little bit. But I'm glad Jesse got to do it. Exactly. It's also just like having the... Like to like-minded people, like sometimes you just need a group of people to complain to and like just to vent, just to get it out there. And they know that you're not like proposing some big life change. You just want to complain about the singer you were dealing with that day or whatever. Like, you know,
0: I don't know. I've never complained about anybody. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Of course. Of course.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think actually, I mean, you know, you just need to have a good, you need a good circle of friends to get you through the ups and downs of the music business. You know,
1: that's just any
0: industry really, I guess.
1: Exactly. Any industry. Because I mean, if you want to sort of take like a more macro view of the whole thing, you know, what, what people who work in our field are, like we're small business owners.
0: Service industry, business
1: owners. We're service industry, business owners. And that's the same thing as a real estate agent. The same thing as the guy who's built up the uh, landscaping company. It's, it's, it's all the same thing really, when you're talking about it, there's like a certain, there's a responsibility. Like the work only happens if you go out and create the work and get the work and do the work well that somebody recommends you for something else. Like it's, we're all, we're all just small business owners.
0: Yeah. No, I, I agree 100%. Is there uh, speaking of going out and getting the work, is there, is there anything that you've ever done where you were like, man, uh, that just like landed me a big gig or got me back in a room or whatever it was that, you know, was, was a big move for keeping your career going when you felt like you hit a plateau?
1: Ooh, I mean, the, well, it's funny, this, this actually timeline wise, this jumps, so we jump back to sort of like my LA story. Right. um, After I left working for Tony Hoffer, I started doing this other gig and um, it was, it was a mistake. And I'll say that in, um, it was just a mistake to take this gig. And what I mean by that is I was not passionate about the. About the music that we were working on and the artists that we were working with and the person frankly, even the person I was working for. And like it, it was, it was just a like day one when I walked in, I was just like, oh man, I made a mistake. Like I walked into the session. First of all, like the home of the session started at like two o'clock. So I walked in at like one thirty, half an hour early. It's a vocal session, like, you know, it's all gonna be set up. And like I'm hearing music coming from the control room. And there's there's like nobody like at the front desk and it's like, all right. And so after like waiting 10 minutes, I'm like, well, I'm just going to go in like, what's the, I'm supposed to be here. So what's the worst that could happen? And I walk into the session and there's the producer that I'm supposed to be meeting. The singer is in the live room and like the front desk guy is like rocking pro tools recording the vocal. And I'm just like, "Uh, okay, this is weird. Like already I understand that like my presence is not going to be valued here. You know, that was like a really weird like they just basically showed up early and decided to start working, which is fine. But it was just uh it was a it was one of many red flags at the beginning.
0: <laughs> it's just one phone call, like, hey man, we started early, uh, we'll do it come come tomorrow.
1: Yeah. It's as easy yeah. as that. Or or like why do you need me for this if you know the guy working the front desk just took my job. So Long story short, the gig didn't last that long. I think it lasted like two or three weeks. And frankly, I don't think I could have made it much longer if it hadn't ended at that point. And basically the project dried up and the money ran out and um, the producer that I was working for moved back to New York. And so after working for a year and a half at Sound Factory for one producer and then jumping to another producer who was going to be like my full-time gig, I basically had... I went from full-time employment to zero I had nothing I had no outside gigs I had no uh, it was just it was bleak that's the <laughs> that's the word I would use for it and so it was it was an interesting point in my in my career because looking back at the time I thought like oh like i'm I'm moving forward you know I got the job as the runner cleaning the toilets and then I was the assistant for the producer and I left the producer because I was gonna go engineer for this other guy and like Everything felt like I was moving forward and I was building something and then I just fell off a cliff and I had absolutely nothing. And uh, at the end of the day, like after, you know, after a little while, I just I couldn't get anything going. Like nobody wanted to hire me. Um, The industry was changing as well. Like studios were closing and people needed engineers less and less. And uh, I just had to swallow my pride and I started over, you know. I was like, all right, back to square one. Let's do this differently this time. Send my resume to a bunch of places and got a call back uh, from uh, Record Plant. And uh, they said it was a a similar, like the whole thing. It was actually a very interesting meeting because they were looking, Record Plant, unlike most places in town, they will hire runners and then they will also hire people as assistants. And oftentimes their assistants end up being the engineers on sessions. Like it's pretty common. So I was like really excited when I got the call and I walked in and the studio manager, we had an interview and he said, look, man, I'm looking at your resume. You're, you're over, like, we need a runner. You know, we just hired, they'd literally hired an assistant engineer like that morning I was just like, Oh, but it's all good. Looking back, he's a great, he's a really great guy. He's a great engineer. And he's done very well since then. But I was like, "I, I need a job. I got rent. I got bills to pay. Like I just, I need this and and he was cool about it. He said, All right, fine. And so I started as a runner again. And not only was I a runner, but like there were a lot of runners at Record Plant. The schedule was brutal. It was inconsistent. It was, we're gonna call you five minutes before you need to be here. So don't ever have a life. And uh, I started over and it was cleaning toilets and making coffee and groceries and running personal errands for people. And it was tough. It was really tough. But I look back on that time. And I sort of wear it proudly. I worked hard. It was like, I really had to, like, you really got to swallow your pride to go backwards like that. Most people but would I, never, never do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, but I, but my, the fact that I went through that, I think was, you know, and not that I haven't had moments of doubt since then, but it was very, it was a very clear reminder. A very, it's a very good reminder of like, no, no, this is what you're supposed to be doing. If you're going to pay that price, like, this, you're, you know, keep going with
0: yeah. Well, it, it just shows that you you knew what your goal was and you were like, okay, well, I need to I need to work backwards. I need to get back on track. How do I do that? You know, you were looking forward to where you want yeah. to go.
1: Yeah. And at the end of the day, I was like, all right, this will be like, it's, it's, it's frustrating that I, you know, sort of spent this time preceding that on what I thought was going to be a move forward and you know it didn't work out. But so I just sort of looked at it and thought like, all right, you're going to start over, but you're going to meet new people. You're going to meet more people. You're going to be The studio, you know, record plan is very much like the project turnover was very quick. There's a lot of people coming in and out day after day. There's five studios and there's just a lot of, a lot of people come through there. So I thought like, all right, you're going to meet people. You're going to make connections. You're going to, this is going to be, this is going to be all right. And I did that for, I want to say six months, maybe, and just did what I was supposed to do. And I got a call from... Tony Hoffer, actually, who was moving studios, and said, "Hey, do you want to come work for me?"
0: Was that out of the blue, or had you stayed in touch with him?
1: We had emailed a couple times. I got asked him for some career advice stuff. You know, it was through him that I learned about, I, I sort of, understood the concept that you know making making a career in music and engineering and production and mixing and all that kind of stuff like you have to create you have to create your business you know and i'm not just talking about sort of like you know you got a network and hand a business card to people like that's not it you have to create a portfolio or a history of stuff that people can say like oh he did that like we should work with him on this or you know when some manager has an artist and they're like oh we need somebody to do some additional production or some mixing like who's done good stuff for us before who you know who do we trust with this like you have to create that trust for people, I guess. That's what I mean by creating your business is creating the trust between you and potential clients that they'll call you. Yeah, that's amazing inside. It's really good. Yeah. And so so he called me sort of out of the blue and, and he just said I'm moving studios. And I knew that he wasn't going to be using an engineer at the new place. And as much as there are some really great people at Record Plant, it was not the scene for me. It was a lot of pop and hip-hop which i'm it's just not in my wheelhouse you sort of learn what you're good at and what's you know you make records that uh you make good records if the music you're working on elicits an emotional connection for you and there was just a lot of stuff that was happening there that as cool as everybody was and as fun as as it all was it wasn't i was never going to be great at that you know so i left there i got possibly the best compliment i've ever gotten when I was leaving, I went upstairs. Um, Rose uh, Manchurney was the, the studio manager at the time or the, the president of the studio. And I walked to her office and just said, like, I'm putting my two weeks. You know, I put in two weeks, which I'll be real, like cleaning toilets for another two weeks when you know you've got a job lined up, is pretty rough as well. <laughs> but I walked in and just said, like, you know, thank you for the time here. Like, I really appreciate it. But I've got this other opportunity. I got to go. And she just said, I wish we had hired you as an engineer. And it was just like, ah, okay, I don't know if down the line, if any of the connections I have here are going to lead to anything else. But when she said that, I knew I had done the work right. I knew that the people who worked there would, trust me, with something in the future. Anyway, that was that. So yeah, so I left there and uh, hooked up with Tony again, and we moved into a studio in Highland Park. Awesome.
0: Well then since then you guys have made a bunch of records, you've been doing that for years, jumped around studios. Um just kind of, you know, edging towards the close here, is there there any big moments or milestones in the last few years that that you wanted to mention? Anything that like shaped shaped you later in your more experienced engineering career?
1: Big milestones that shaped my career? I mean, I don't know. I don't know that there I don't know that I would point to like a specific moment of being like, oh, and that's when I became an engineer, you know, <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's a painfully slow process and it, and it's all just sort of these incremental moments that all at the end of the day, all of a sudden they're going to add up to something. You'd be like, oh, cool. I, d- I do have one moment that reminds me of, I've gotten to engineer three for Telly's records now, uh, that Tony has produced you know, those are those are full length records, like so we're we're camped out for a couple months from tracking all the way through mixing. Each of those records has a particular and different aesthetic from the previous records. And that's a I would say that's a function of Tony's production and then also John Fratelli's songwriting and his artistic vision. Like he's not interested in doing the same thing each time. And that's and that's really fun and it's challenging. But on this most recent one I do remember we were we were working on a song and there was uh we were, we were trying to dial in like a very particular drum sound and we got it very quickly which was a big deal because it was it's sort of like a complicated not complicated but it was kind of this like 60s wall of sound drum sound which is not to toot my own horn but it's harder to do than it sounds <laughs> especially now because things just aren't like recorded that way and you know, like we didn't have like a big plate reverb sitting in the corner. Like all that stuff can be done digitally, but it's, you know, to get that sounding that way from the start, it's, it's, it's pretty tricky, but we got it quickly. And I just had this moment of realizing that I've been doing this long enough now that when somebody says it needs to sound like a sixties drum kit or like a particular, like a, like a Scott Walker drum kit, I know what that sounds like and I can get there quickly. And being able to cut down on that time it takes to deliver something to somebody that's it's a huge game changer when somebody's just like, I want it to sound like this, and you can just say, Cool, here it is. You know, that's nobody wants to sit around watching you play with plugins for 20 minutes to get the drums, you know.
0: Well, it sets a barrier (laughs) up in the creative (laughs) flow, you know? It's exactly you know, somebody's ready for an idea, the drummer's stoked, the artist is super excited, and then like three hours later the drums are close. You know, the guy doesn't want to play drums at that point.
1: And it goes back to like that trust of just like, you know, if somebody throws out a reference and you can deliver what, what they're hearing up in their head, you know, for the drums or the guitar, or the vocal reverb, like whatever it is, if you can deliver what they're looking for. They're going to like, it creates this, like, oh, this person knows what they're doing. They understand what I'm trying to do. It just makes everything easier when those, those barriers come down.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've made mistakes in the past, assuming that, you know, like knowing I can get a sound, but, that I know the artist wants to move quick. So, you know, we move forward with what we have and they don't wanna take the time to shape it. And we allow that to go forward. And like you said, it, it it's a trust breakdown because then they're never really happy. There's something, even though you you may have nailed it later, it's like that moment in the beginning is like, uh, it's like a first impression. They're like, oh, okay, we're, yeah, gonna, we're gonna absolutely. do it later. Okay. And then when you get to later, it for some reason is never right because a lot of times people don't know what they want anyway so they need to hear it so you yeah. can't assume that you know what they want because they might not know either
1: i mean that's the thing and it's like and if you're if you're working with like a band or an artist or whatever and it's like and something early in the process isn't right in terms of like what they it isn't right whether that be it doesn't match what they hear in their head or what the song is going to need and sometimes those are going to be two different things you know if something early on in the process isn't right everything that comes after that is going to be informed by that sort of like that problem. Exactly. Like your singer is not going to sing great. If he's like, Oh, the, the reverb on the snare is not the right snare. Like he's going to be thinking about that the whole time. Yeah. You know, or your guitar player, like she's, she's like, Oh, the bass is not fuzzy enough. Like it's all these things. They, they cascade. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Amazing. Well, I like to, uh, I like to close by putting, uh, putting people on the spot. If you're down, um, let's do it. So I'd, I'd like to know if you're willing to tell us uh, what you can, what is your current like big goal? And do you know what the first like smallest move towards it is?
1: Uh, Yeah, sure. I want to do more production. And the next move to do that is to do more production. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I don't say that glibly. Like it's um, like, let's say you want to be, for anybody's listening, like you want to be, a singer-songwriter, or you want to be a musician in a band. Well, like if you want to be a singer-songwriter, just be a singer-songwriter. Like just write songs, sing them, and put them out because that's what artists do is there's there's an output. And there's a lot of people who say they want to be musicians or singer-songwriters and um, they spend three years making one song and that's a hobby is what that is. You know? So... Do what you want to do, do it quickly. And if you do it well, people will notice and the rest of it will kind of take care of itself. So I want to do more production, so I'm going to do more production.
0: Awesome. Amazing. Shorten that down to just start. Just do it.
1: (laughs) Just do it. I mean, Nike Nike had it right.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they nailed it. They nailed it. Awesome. Uh, Well, uh, would you like to let our listeners know where they can find you on the internet if they want to connect or work together? Sure.
1: Uh, I have a website... Cameronlister.com. You can also find me on Instagram, CLister01, the handle I've had since high school (laughs) or even before that. And um, yeah, you can find me there. There's uh, The next Fratelli's record comes out this fall. I engineered all of that. And you can also hear some mixes I did uh, for this electronic artist called Hawk Sass, (laughs) H-O-C-K-S-A-S-S. Uh, really cool stuff. Really loved mixing it. And, uh, people should check it
0: out. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we'll put, uh, titles and links to all that stuff in the show notes. People can find it or keep an eye out for it. And, uh, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Cameron. Uh, this was great. I obviously love hanging out with you. All right, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely, dude. Definitely. Thank you so much. So that's a wrap on, uh, episode five. Hope you all enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. As usual, please subscribe and share if you're getting value out of this show. Uh, Don't forget to jump over to completeproducer.net, join in our conversation there. It's a great community of people. If you are looking for Stephen Pressfield's book, there will be a link to that in the show notes and you can grab that. I will say that book is a very easy read. It's one, two, maybe three pages max per chapter. It's really easy to just grab for a little inspiration on a daily basis. So thanks again for listening. Thank you, Cameron, and we'll see y'all next week.